Welcome to the Obesity Medicine Podcast with your host, Dr. Matea Rentia, board certified in internal medicine and obesity medicine. Here, we talk about a path to metabolic health, and we have real conversations about chronic weight management and living a full life. Just a reminder, I am a physician, but I'm not your physician. So everything that's on this podcast is for informational purposes, but please go talk to your doctor about what's right for you. There is no medical advice being given on this podcast. Welcome back to another episode of the podcast. How's everybody doing? I hope that you are enjoying summer as much as I do. Ironically, I love the activities of summer. I just hate how hot it is. (laughs) I I think I like most fall and springtime when there's that little bit of a breeze in the air, but not too much to give you a headache. And it's like Goldilocks as far as temperature. But I really love being able to go to the pool and things like that. So hopefully you're all having a great summer. Today, we're going to talk about a topic that I definitely get asked often, and it's what kind of labs should my doctor be checking? And I always want to remind you, I know I say that a lot on this podcast, I am a physician, but I'm not your physician. And so I want you to take all of this just as general educational, informational content, and maybe then you go have a conversation with your doctor, perhaps coming from a little bit more of an informed perspective, and the conversation that you have then with your medical team can be a little bit more fruitful. To help you along with this, I've made the most brief of brief handouts that lists all of these different labs, just so that if you want it in a written form, that's easy to go over maybe when you go to your doctor or just to see the names written down correctly. Again, we'll have the link to grab that in the show notes down below. Okay, so first I want to start real quick though. I get really great questions from listeners and I want to always remind you the easiest way if you ever want to provide a question to me is if you get on my email list, if you go to rentiaclinic.com forward slash blog, right on the right hand side, there's the email list to get on it for this podcast. And weekly on Monday, we send out an email about what's on the podcast and a link to listen, things like that. I always encourage at the bottom of that email, hey, if you have topics or questions that you want me to go over, hit reply on this. And that's how I get a lot of the great ideas of what I'm talking about. If you want to get on that email list, again, we'll have the link down in the show notes. A question that I got is, do you have patients who complain of low energy and fatigue? Is it likely caused by calorie restriction and under eating, or do you titrate the meds down if this happens? Other interventions, question mark. So when I get asked a question like this or a concern from a patient, here are a few things that I keep in mind in general. Number one, I still want there to be a medical workup. So for example, labs being rechecked, maybe if they're a few months into medication or just in general, again, at the the medical team's discretion. But I don't get tunnel vision that everything is either related to weight or related to the medication. Yes, it can be the case, and I talk through these things, but again, we don't want to miss other things that can be starting. Remember, two things can happen at once, and this is a big skill in medicine to not get anchored into things. So number one, I still make sure that lab work is up to date and that things are appropriate, such as if they've been losing weight and they're on blood pressure medication, that that has been down titrated. If their blood pressures are coming down, things like that, that there's nothing else that can be leading to the fatigue. Typically, if someone's really following a really balanced nutrition plan, they're getting enough hydration, they're getting enough water, typically the fatigue is not from the calorie restriction. Again, if we do it in the right way to make sure that they're not getting malnourished. But number one, I'm making sure that we check what the labs are. Okay, the second thing that I keep in mind is that 
This fatigue, especially with GLP-1 medications, so those are the injection weight loss medications, it really can occur, and I hear most commonly at about 24 to 48 hours after taking the injection. It's this delay by however many hours, but then there might be this day of experiencing, yeah, I'm just much more tired that day. Some people it lasts more or less. Some people don't experience it at all. What I generally see is that the longer someone's on the medication, the more that that goes away. And if it's not, if someone is extremely incapacitated by this, then that's likely not going to be a medicine that's good for this person for life, right? So in the same way that if you weren't tolerating side effects with something else, in the same way, we would likely change it or do something different. But the answer is not necessarily to down titrate the medication if you're needing it for the purpose of helping to bring weight, either bring down weight with weight management or stabilization. It's going to be the skill of can you tolerate it a few weeks while you get used to it? If it's really bad, then yes, we might stop it entirely. That's at the discretion of your team. But what I typically find is as long as labs look okay, as long as it's only a brief period of time, as long as hydration and protein protein intake is appropriate. Most people, I have not had anyone, frankly, stop it due to a reason of fatigue. So that tells me that things are getting better for them. Also, there's this balancing point that happens where enough weight is released, where people feel so much better in general, that even if they have a few hours per week of fatigue, it's just so outweighed by all the areas that change in their life. I just had a patient this week that, and she's actually agreed to be on the podcast coming up, and I'm going to let her tell her story, but multiple medications gone, multiple other medications dose reduced, so many areas of life improved. It's all of that carries so much more weight compared to sometimes potentially feeling some fatigue. And again, everybody's different. All right. So getting into today's topic of labs. So often I'm asked, hey, what should my doctor be checking or what should I be looking out for? And a lot of these are really just general labs that are checked, part of kind of a a comprehensive workup annually once a year. And I'm going to explain what these are. And then there's one that's kind of plus or minus if you want to specially request this from your doctor, and we'll go over that. The first lab that I think of, it's called a CBC, and that stands for complete blood count. This lets you know things like your hemoglobin count. That's what carries the oxygen around in your body. If your hemoglobin is low, that's a diagnosis that's called anemia. And it will also let you know things like platelet counts, white blood cell counts. This is important because if you are starting out anemic, you can be tired and fatigued and have problems from that. Or it can be obviously a lot of other medical diagnoses that are going with that. But just knowing that your blood counts are where they should be is extremely helpful. This is usually something, especially women, that I really worry about. A lot of women are really affected by their periods and they might have an anemia depending on what's going on. Or in the perimenopausal years, you might be bleeding more than normal. And so it becomes even more important that we know what the blood counts are doing. So that's number one as a CBC. Number two, and again, this is not in any numbered order. I don't know why I'm saying that. Number two is a CMP that stands for complete metabolic panel. So there is a difference between a basic metabolic panel, a BMP, and a CMP, which is a complete metabolic panel. And I want you to get the one that's complete. And the reason being This will include not only electrolytes, so things like sodium, potassium, things like that, but it will also include kidney function. And the third important, this is what the part, this is what makes it the complete part is it has a liver function as well. 
And that is really, really important. And by the way, this panel also includes obviously a, a random fasting sugar. So you're getting electrolytes, random sugar level, kidney function, and liver function. And liver function really matters because one of the things that's extremely prevalent when weight is honestly just even elevated a little bit. This is something that can pop up depending on how much your weight is affecting you. I have some patients that their BMI will be from 27 up to 30 and they will start to have this problem already. And if your liver numbers are up, sometimes we use the term fatty liver or non-alcoholic fatty liver disease. So again, there's different ways that we diagnose these things. But whenever liver numbers are up, that is always not a good sign. And we really want to take action when we see that. Typically, the thing that's going to come out of a doctor's mouth when liver numbers are up, number one, hopefully they do an additional workup, such as like a liver ultrasound, just to make sure you don't have any cirrhosis, which is permanent scarring of the liver. But most people when the liver numbers start to be up, if it's weight related, there will not be any permanent damage in the liver. And so you'll be told fatty liver, just sort of like layman's terms. And what they will say is, hey, if you can lose some weight, it will reverse that. And this is true. Now that's always easier said than done, right? But again, I always say knowledge is power. So even knowing that that lab is up is going to be extremely helpful. I wouldn't get scared with that number, but I would let that be an indication, just like with blood sugar, hey, I really need to take action in my life. I would not let it be something, I, I can't tell you how common it is, especially even in primary care, I would see this. It was just year after year after year, I would get someone where they'd had five, six years of the liver numbers being up. No action was ever really taken. They'd kind of heard to do something, but they didn't really understand how significant it was. And then I would meet with them and they'd say, oh, no one ever really explained to me that this is actually a big deal. So why is this a big deal? What we're seeing is that non-alcoholic fatty liver disease, where there's just extra fat in the liver, just like it is anywhere else, what ends up happening is it starts to scar with time and that creates cirrhosis, which is a really serious liver condition. And we can't reverse cirrhosis as the problem. And so that has been turning into a reason that some people are needing liver transplants, just like someone that might have a history of alcoholism. So alcohol plays no part here. It's just that weight has been up long enough where the liver can't handle all those fat stores in the liver. And so that ends up happening. The first sign, though, a lot of the time that this is the kind of thing that might come down the road, it's that your liver numbers might be up just a few points. And again, it could just be one or two or multiple. But this is a really good way by just getting a complete metabolic panel that has the liver function in it that you can see if that's happening. The next one that I have on here is going to be a hemoglobin A1C. This is a three-month average blood sugar number. So it does not matter if yesterday you tried to fast all day to quote-unquote trick the labs. <laughs> does not matter. It's over a three-month average period. What has your blood sugar been doing? And a normal hemoglobin A1C is 5.6 or less. Pre-diabetic range is 5.7 up to 6.4, and diabetes is at or above 6.5, so 6.5 and above. This is important because by the time that this is showing up, again, you've likely metabolically not been in a great place for a long time. So I'm going to talk at the end, and actually, let me just bring this up now. If we were to have checked the years prior your fasting insulin level, now this is not commonly checked and I'll explain why, but if you check a fasting insulin level, those are going to be up years before the pre-diabetic hemoglobin A1C is ever going to show up. Again, it's one of those things, once the A1C starts to be in the pre-diabetic range, time to take action. Why? Because if you can act when you're 
blood sugar is in the pre-diabetic range, you are most metabolically flexible and you can turn it around to reversing it for life. You don't even need to lose weight to do this. You could just make nutrition changes where you move more toward an unprocessed diet and you work on blood sugar management. And maybe you start to incorporate some movement in a way that's not, I'm trying to exercise to lose weight, but really, hey, there are are times, for example, like after a meal, if you move a little bit, it can help bring down blood sugar. If you act when you're in this pre-diabetic range, or obviously even before it, so it doesn't develop, but about one out of every three Americans is pre-diabetic. If we can act when it's in this range, you can easier bring it down. Now, if you wait for diabetes to already develop, and it's okay if that's already happened to you, right? I mean, this is a lot of people have diabetes right now. But once that happens, it's harder to bring it down to the normal range. So I always use this term metabolic flexibility, your body's ability to be able to handle blood sugar, to handle stress, to handle things like that. It doesn't work as well in the pre-diabetic range and then even less in the diabetic range, right? So it's, it's, the, it's the definition of what's happening. So when you see that these numbers are elevated, if you get the three-month average number done and you're either pre-diabetic or diabetic, again, we want to take action. We don't want to be scared, but we just want to say, hey, time for me to know that, that something's going on here. By the way, I am very passionate about this, very passionate about this. I have always loved blood sugar management. It is one of the things that I all day long could talk about it and help patients with it. And coming up in the fall timeframe, so about mid-September, I'm going to be running another program and it's really going to be focused much more on blood sugar management. So if you want to learn about really interesting stuff that doctors just don't have enough time in the visits to go over it. I would, I just every so often in visits throw out little comments, but I'm going to bring, I'm going to talk about all of it. So even if you're not my patient, there's going to be no medical advice in it, but we're just going to, it's going to be lots of education on when are you most insulin resistant in the day? What are ways that you can work on the diet where you're not having to a million percent deprive yourself, but you're still able to bring down those blood sugars? I want to really stress this because I think that this is important. Everyone thinks that you have to lose massive amounts of weight to help with blood sugar. Yes, it can help, but I have had many patients where the weight does not change at all and and prediabetes reverses. I've experienced this for myself as well. I was prediabetic and through making more balanced choices, and I'm, I'm really big into talking about that, there are really easy ways that you can do these things, and then this is not a problem for you. It, it is It is just so great. So if that's something that you're interested in, Again, if you're just on my email list in general, like we talked about above, if you're on the email list for the podcast, rentiaclinic.com forward slash blog, that right-hand side, if you're on there, then you'll get that information coming up if you wanted to sign up for that. It's going to be a really good time. I've even thought of some fun ways of if people are wanting to do like a continuous glucose monitor with it, really learn how different foods affect you. So I think it's going to be a really good time. (laughs) If you're interested in that, definitely my passion is through the roof on this topic. (laughs) And I decided, you know what, we're just going to go all in on that being the only thing we talk about and not even worrying about other things during those weeks. Okay, so that is the hemoglobin A1C, three-month average number, super, super important. I almost feel more than anything that is something that just needs to get checked. Most doctors are doing that, but just I would make sure that you have it done, honestly, at least annually if you're someone that's struggling with your weight, but again, your doctor can kind of guide you on that. The next one, I was actually going to put this at the end, but I'm just going to bring it up here because it's relevant to this. So a fasting insulin level, we just talked about how if you check that, that's going to be up far before you're ever going to end up having a, either a fasting sugar showing up over 100. So under 100 would be normal, but 100 up to 126. If you're in that, that I would call that impaired fasting glucose in the morning. 
the fasting insulin level is going to be up far before the other ones are. Now, did not check this as a primary care doctor, and I also don't really check it as a weight management doctor. Why? Because it doesn't change the management that I do. That is me personally. I am always still going to work with you on how to have a balanced diet. I am always still going to work on you with how to have a balanced nutrition approach, how to incorporate movement, how to do all these things. It doesn't change anything I'm doing. So what I like to say is that the fasting insulin level, as far as I'm concerned, and every doctor is different, so talk to your doctor, it's more of an academic exercise. It's more of you being able to see, I don't know if I am that healthy or not. Let me check this level. Again, about 7% of people, even if their weight's up, that number's not going to be affected. And that's amazing, right? That just means you are resilient at that moment. Most people, though, when the weight is up, insulin levels have to be up to keep the blood sugar normal. So even if you're not pre-diabetic or diabetic, if your weight is up, you're needing a lot more insulin around to support the blood sugars being normal. And we can, again, we're going to, when I do that course coming up here in the fall, I'm going to show you graphs of that. It's fascinating. The way I describe it, it's like your body is needing to run a marathon every single day. And there are some people where their bodies can handle that. And others, the pancreas decides, I'm going to peter out at some point. That's when prediabetes and diabetes starts to develop. You have more insulin resistance with a lot of organs. And so those are things where there are stepwise progressions to these things. And the fasting insulin level can let you know some of what's going on. Again, I've not ever been curious for myself or for patients. The reason being, I don't change anything with the information. So if I don't change the management plan based on something, I'm not going to sit there and order it all the time. But again, a lot of weight management doctors, they very much so have that part of their panel. I do think it's really nice as well if you're someone that's very data-driven. And I know these patients because I ask them on the first visit. If you're someone that you love to see, look, I made all these changes, and then you get the labs redone, let's say, six months later, and you say, oh my gosh, look at this, cholesterol's better, and blood sugar's down, and insulin level's down. That's encouraging for those patients. If you are one of those, this might be a lab that you want checked. Now, again, if you're going to a doctor that isn't familiar with this weight management space, they might say to you, well, I used to say this to patients, I'm not going to change any of your management based on it, so I'm not going to order it. I don't care if the other doctor orders it, but if I'm not going to do anything with it, I'm not going to order a test that gives me useless information. At least my patients understood why I was doing the things I was doing. So most of my patients, I'm not getting this checked every so often. Again, knowing why we're checking it, some people will want that checked. So again, that's the fasting insulin level. All right, I have three, more, three four more things on this list. The next one on here is a fasting lipid panel. So that includes things like cholesterol, HDL, LDL, triglycerides. That's just letting you know what are going on with the lipids in your body. The Let's just say generically the cholesterol levels. What is fascinating with cholesterol levels in our body, usually it's not this independent, only cholesterol's off. I mean, it can be for certain genetic syndromes. Some people, if triglycerides are really through the roof, like up to a thousand, there's something genetic going on. It's not just the way in which you're eating. But the other thing that can go on is a lot of metabolic syndrome, diabetes, thyroid problems. There are other things that go in a constellation with cholesterol being involved. So most things with rare exception, do not occur in isolation. For example, 
Metabolic syndrome is going to be the person where their triglycerides are up, the cholesterol levels are up, their blood sugar is up, the blood pressure is up. Usually these things are going together. So that's why cholesterol levels, number one, to see what the patterns and the trends and what it looks like, but also because sometimes it lets us know, hey, if this is up, I likely need to look into some of these other things too. All right. The second to last one on here is basic thyroid testing. So this could include a TSH level. That stands for thyroid stimulating hormone. So thyroid testing is important because thyroid, I really consider the master hormone regulator of our body. It regulates, there's basically no organ system that it's not affecting. So we want to see this because number one, it can affect our weight. But here's the interesting thing. Mostly I do it because people are going to feel energy-wise, they're going to feel poor, they're going to be losing hair. If you're younger, your periods might be affected. Your heart rate can even be affected with this. So there's a lot of symptoms and they're usually very diffuse. Like they might have dry skin, period changes, some hair loss. So it doesn't always need to be weight that's making you think thyroid. Again, this is like a whole nother topic. But this is the thing I want to stress. A lot of people ask about, well, how many other thyroid labs need to be checked? And again, Usually screening is that TSH, the thyroid stimulating hormone. That is the lab that we check initially. Now, if you go see some functional medicine doctors or doctors that are not completely within the Western medicine system, they might also be checking a lot of other things. But again, for just basic purposes, as long as a TSH has been checked, that's going to be great for you to start out with. Now, the frustrating thing that I just want to touch on here with thyroid is that people are always saying, well, is it my thyroid? They want a reason that their weight's up. And I totally understand this. You want to be able to say, this is the reason my weight's up. Here's the challenge. Even if your thyroid function is found to be low, because quite often it is for people and it, and as you age, sometimes it comes out more commonly. A lot of the time though, even getting on medication then for it, what we see is that there's actually not a lot of weight loss. And this is discouraging for people because they say, oh, you know, they finally think that they have their, they're going to hang their hat on a hook that they've found it. And we really don't see, I forget an endocrinologist. I think she said not more than 10 to 12 pounds lost. I don't even see that much. I think that it helps. Number one, you need it physiologically for, again, a lot of different reasons in your body, but it's not going to be the thing usually that's going to lead to a lot of weight loss. Now, I will say that I do make sure if someone has hypothyroidism, meaning low thyroid function, that the thyroid level is great for them, that someone is really monitoring to make sure that it's where it needs to be. But really, it's because it plays into fatigue and other things. Okay, the last one that I have on here are just checking some basic vitamin levels. The two ones that just come to the top of my mind are vitamin D and B12 levels. Vitamin D, number one, with weight being elevated, people tend to be more deficient. Also, depending on where you're living, I see patients in the Midwest, right? Indiana, Illinois right now. And universally, I just see vitamin D deficiencies in these states. But but again, depending on where you live, maybe it's not as much a challenge. The population I'm seeing it very much so is B12 levels because sometimes dietary-wise, even if you don't have the problem right now, sometimes what I see is down the road deficiencies develop. And so I'd like to know a baseline that these things were normal to begin with. Now, I want to just come back to kind of double back to this. These are some basic things to think about, but I want you to go talk to your doctor because I don't know the medications that you're on. I don't know what your medical history is. I don't know what your symptoms are. So all of those things are little clues to what your doctor needs to check into. But at least what I've brought up here, this is kind of run of the mill. 
if weight is a challenge for you, things that at the very most basic level should be checked. And again, depending on different medications and different things like that, your doctor will think of different things as well or what needs to be uniquely followed for you. Okay, so I'm going to leave it there. Again, if you want to have a sheet where we list these different labs just so that you basically know the name of them. Again, it's not lab interpretation. It's not anything like that. That you really need to work with your doctor, but just the name of the labs that I mentioned physically on this podcast. (laughs) If you want that, then again, we'll have the link in the show notes. If you don't know how to get to the show notes where you're listening, because sometimes people don't know you're listening to this podcast, but you don't know how to find where that is. It's usually swiping right, left, or up on when you're looking at the picture of this episode. But if you can't find that, the easiest way to always do this is go to rentiaclinic.com forward slash blog. And there we have for each episode, we have a long form blog posting. Again, it will always have links to anything that we're talking about. If you're ever wondering, you know, you mentioned a formula, you mentioned a name, you want more details on it. That is always the best place on my website. Again, rentiaclinic.com forward slash blog. We have the long form for each episode. You can just click into the one that you want to know about. It's in reverse chronological order on that page, and you can see it all written out if you want more detail. All right. This was a little bit of a longer one. I thought this was going to be super short, but we had a little bit more to talk about. So I'm going to leave it there. I hope you all have a great rest of the week, and we'll talk soon.